afternoon, everybody. It is April 27th, 2023. It's noon on the East Coast and you West Coasters are just getting your day started at 9 a.m. I want to welcome everybody to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And today we have a slightly different topic and that is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and amyloidosis. They are both diseases that can cause hypertrophy in the heart. Sometimes they're very difficult to provide a differential diagnosis between the two and sometimes they can occur together. You can both have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and forms of amyloidosis. Today I am joined by two individuals who are both HCM and amyloid specialists. So interestingly, a few people in our our professional career model here have chosen both of these forms of heart disease to focus their careers on. We have Ahmad Masary from Oregon Health Science Center and Melissa Burroughs from Wellstar in Atlanta. And we're gonna, we'll start with Melissa for introductions and tell us a little bit about you, your practice, your training and what you know about this topic. Great, well, thank you for having me today. love talking about both of these topics. So my name is Melissa Burrows. I am a non-invasive cardiologist here in Atlanta. I work for Wellstar. And um, here at Wellstar, I specialize in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cardiac amyloidosis. I have been all over the country for training. So um, I started my training here in Atlanta uh, in undergrad, but then went to Harvard for medical school, went to the West Coast for UCSF, um, for residency, Duke for fellowship. And then I was on the faculty of UCSF for a number of years before working for Stanford and then moving to Wellstar. So I say that to show that I've had um, the privilege of interacting with a number of, uh, of specialists for HCM over the years and been able to kind of use that exposure and that training uh, and bring it to Wellstar, which has been fantastic. Um, I love uh, taking care of these types of patients and figuring out, I consider it p- complex problem solving, which is what I find the most joy in and as a clinician. So I'm just happy to be here and share a little bit of my experience with the community. Thank you so much. Ahmad, tell us a little bit about your background and your center. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me here today. As you mentioned, Ahmad Masri, I'm a cardiologist at Oregon and Health and Science University. I run both our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center as well as our cardiac amyloidosis program. And I am part of, of a more complex uh, amyloid setup where we have five or six physicians that essentially run a clinic once a month as well for these complex types of patients. We call it the multidisciplinary amyloidosis program or clinic as well. And similar to Melissa, I've been around in terms of training, Cleveland Clinic, University of Pittsburgh, and then now I'm at Oregon just to focus on on these diseases with some other diseases also that are much, much more rare, but they, they can present in the same fashion as well. So happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation. I just opened up my other form of communication with the audience on Facebook. So if you're watching on Facebook and you have questions during the presentation, feel free to drop them in and we will address them um, as we have time. So I want to begin with an understanding of the differential diagnosis, like how do you know what is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What is amyloidosis? And I will tip that with what is the role of genetics in figuring this out? I'm going to start with Melissa and then Maud, we're going to go to you for additional content. So Melissa, what is HCM and amyloid? Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is an inherited disorder, it's a genetic disorder of the sarcomere. And so because because of mutations in the proteins that code the basically the contractile apparatus for the heart muscle, the heart starts to 
thicken, the walls thicken, and there's scar formation. And that can manifest itself in a number of ways with a number of symptoms. People can get heart failure symptoms, shortness of breath, edema, they can have obstruction, which can cause chest pain, syncope, shortness of breath. And so there's a lot of different ways in which patients come to us, but that's the underlying disease process. Where cardiac amyloidosis is a little different, amyloid is basically when small proteins deposit into the heart tissue. Most common cause is from a protein that is every one has transthyretin produced in the liver. And it has a role in the body. It carries thyroid and retinol around to the body. But as people get older, for unclear reasons, it tends to break apart. Those pieces of the protein can deposit into different tissues and one being the heart. And so this tends to happen in people as they age, but there are people who have a genetic predisposition to have their transthyretin break apart more often, sometimes at earlier ages. So there are mutations that also have a higher frequency of, of this happening but it can happen with the wild type of the normal as well. So very different disease processes, both resulting in thickening of the walls of the ventricle, but then you know one disease being mostly a disease of older adults and then hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can occur, manifest itself across the lifespan. So you mentioned a term that I just want to define for the listeners, wild type. So wild type is the, the most common variant, the plain vanilla of transthyretin is the best way to describe it to patients, where that's the most, the most common in the human population. Across the globe, there have been various mutations of this protein. Some mutations are more common in Africa, Europe, Asia, and these are things that you know, we observe. And some types of mutations are more likely to cause cardiac amyloidosis than the plain vanilla version. So that's why we distinguish mutation, which is specific to a specific origin, geographic origin versus wild type, which is the more common variant we see across the globe. Ahmad, you want to comment anything additional on that? I think, you know, typically what, what you end up looking at is the patient in front of you, how likely something is to happen versus not. And, you know, the reality is you ask two different groups of clinicians, two different questions. One group that doesn't focus on these conditions, you just want them to recognize that there is a a problem and that problem could be either symptoms or could be left ventricular hypertrophy. So increase in in the wall thickness of the heart and whatnot, which is the classic thing in HCM we always talk about, is that we need to explain why someone has left ventricular hypertrophy and not just only plain hypertension. So that's one group of people that you want want them to be looking into patients because these are, you know, the front line. And then the next thing is, you know, when we say experts, it's it's probably a self-serving term, but it's, it's about seeing patients over the years with certain specific types of presentations and diseases that allow you then to actually pick up when there is something unusual happening. And I think there is enough distinction between amyloid and HCM from a presentation perspective when someone is seeking care because of that. Patients with amyloid tend to have a little bit more or higher burden of disease. They're a bit more symptomatic. Their imaging looks slightly different. HCM patients, uh, you know, as Dr. Boris said, it spans the life of patients can happen at a young age. Amyloid is very, very rare to happen below the age of 50. It can still happen, but very, very uncommon, especially in the transthyretin type. There is another type called light chain amyloidosis, which is you have a factory that is producing unwarranted proteins. So the transthyretin amyloid type, you have the liver, which is intrinsic to all of us, it's producing the protein. While in light chain amyloidosis, you have an external entity called plasma cells, Though that you know went abnormal and decided to start secreting 
proteins that are not welcomed in the body. And so that type, the light chain, can span different decades of life, but still typically still above the age of 40. There are rare diseases below the age of 40 as well. And so uh, it is really more about how to pick these patients up from a community of patients who are not going to come to a clinician or a physician saying, you know, I think I have this. So uh, how about, you know, you look into it. So let's talk for a moment about some of the symptoms crossover. Patients with HCM can get short of breath. Patients with amyloid can get short of breath. Patients with HCM can feel palpitations. Amyloid, you can feel palpitations. Do you tend to see syncope in amyloidosis? More on the ad- advanced side of things. So typically I- it's either related to a drop in blood pressure or related to in the advanced stages, you have what we call conduction disease, just slowing down in the electrical activity or heart impulse traveling through the heart itself. It's slightly different from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where you For example, if you have obstruction to the blood flowing out of the heart, as in obstructive HCM, you would have dizziness frequently or syncope or or pre-syncope, which is the stage before, just from that obstruction state. And in some patients, as you're well aware, there are ventricular arrhythmias that can happen in in HCM. In in amyloid, depends on the type, interestingly enough. If you have light chain amyloidosis, you are more likely to be sicker and you're more likely to develop arrhythmias, and you could have syncope as part of the presentation or as part of the manifestation of the disease. That's why we do use more more frequently defibrillators in that population. For transthyretin, this is fairly uncommon, unless, you know, except for the more advanced diseases of uh, stages of the disease itself. What would a genetic test potentially look like in this community? Are we looking for both sarcomeric mutations and amyloid manifestation? So genetic testing has a role in both of these diseases. And, and they're used in primarily for family screening, but for, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it can be very helpful for diagnosis. In hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you oftentimes have a very expansive panel that is looking for the phenocopies as well. You don't want to miss fibrase. And, and so that's routine and uh, it can be very helpful. For amyloid, it's a little different. If we look at the algorithms for or the ways in the, the, the workflows for diagnosis, you know, the first thing is to make sure it's not light chain. As Dr. Masari said, you know, when it's coming from the bone marrow, that is a much more aggressive disease. People sometimes, you know, get very sick very quickly. So you want to exclude that first. You don't want to go down the wrong path and find out that you've made the wrong diagnosis. Once you've excluded that, then you can we have imaging tests to look for the ATTR coming from the liver. But then after you've made that diagnosis, that's when you do the genetic testing. And it doesn't really matter if you test plain vanilla wild type versus a mutation, you still have the disease. We're right. just using this to help your family. So that's a little bit of a different way of using it. And p- there's a lot of confusion among cardiologists about how to use genetic testing for cardiac amyloidosis. That's why I like to go to the algorithms because it really is for the family. It does not change the patient's care where for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it may change the diagnosis if we find out that indeed, you know, there is a phenocopy rather yep. than a mutation. The other thing though, that makes it a little challenging, especially in a lot of patients that I take care of is that you may not find a known mutation in a patient who has a clinical diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You may have all the imaging, all the symptoms, everything's adding up. Yes, they have it. And you get to the genetic test and there's nothing. And so we have to make sure we're clear that, you know, you have the disease. It's just that we have not found your mutation. 
The science is behind. We have to catch up to you. And we're working at it, but it takes time. And so these are very nuanced things. That's why we have specialized centers so that we can interpret these tests appropriately and help patients and their families. But they both have a role for genetic testing. And because these both of these is running families, family history is so important. Are there other symptoms that somebody could look to beyond cardiac symptoms? Are there any telltale signs that amyloid might be present? Just right before we jump into it, the, the, there had been a development in HCM that actually helped a lot, which is cardiac MRIs. In general, we do a lot of MRIs in patients with HCM, and that can actually weed out a lot of the, uh, or find out or raise a suspicion for amyloid as well. Not universally, but in a lot of patients. So I think that's another layer of a security blanket to a lot of a lot of us clinicians, but also a lot of patients, you know, that is, it can be helpful. Let me clarify that by asking this. I've had the opportunity to see images from MRI of HCM and amyloid side by side. So I have a reference point here. Can you give us some narrative explanation of what some of the visual differences are in these two types of uh, two images? I think there are a lot of a lot of like tiny pieces of evidence that you can accumulate throughout the exam itself. So for example, the thickening in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is more likely to be in the septum. So uh, and asymmetrical, asymmetrical thickening does still happen in amyloid. But if you have someone, for example, where the side of the heart, the lateral wall of the heart essentially is thicker than the, or as thick as the septum itself as well within in that fashion, that gives you a little bit of a, of a pause. It can still be sometimes HCM, but in general, it should give you a pause. And what, what am I dealing with? But really the biggest sign that you're looking at is once you get an MRI, they administer this contrast called gadolinium. And gadolinium essentially normally should go to the blood, from the blood to the heart muscle. And then over minutes, it should come out of the muscle and leave the body. So that's the normal is that you don't retain gadolinium in the, in the muscle itself for more than a couple of minutes. What we do is that we just image after 10, 15 minutes, depending on the dose we use. And the pattern of how this contrast is retained in the myocardium is actually very, very specific to tell us if someone has amyloidosis or not. Obviously, Every you know, rule has exceptions. Otherwise, it would have been much easier. It has to be complex. So you do have about 10, 10 to 15% of the patients who don't necessarily follow exactly what you, what you would hope that they do. But in the majority of the patients, you are able to exclude amyloid fairly comfortably just by doing an MRI in the, in the, if the clinical scenario is pointing towards HCM. Now, if the clinical scenario is not, that also changes your probabilities, correct? So because probability always relies on what do you think the patient also has? There's terms that patients might see on their imaging reports. And we think it's important for patients to speak the right language. So we know what we're talking about here. So they'll often see something saying not suggestive and infiltrative disease. Let's talk about the word infiltrative because we could see it on our reports. And most of the time it's negative for infiltrative. What does infiltrative mean? But infiltrative by definition means that there is basically a substance that is depositing into the heart tissue. So when we talk about amyloid, we're talking about proteins, pieces of proteins that are depositing into the tissue, basically depositing into that we call the interstitium, the space in between the cells. And that's kind of what we're referring to. But there are other infiltrative processes. And so, you know, that's why they use a general term. And, you know, it, it does probably sound scary to someone who's not familiar with the terminology, but that's what we mean. I agree. It's a very generic term. It, it's just meant to encompass all diseases that are external to the muscle. 
of the heart itself and reflects things that are coming in, either depositing in or caused by inflammation and you know other things coming in. So classic examples of things you might have heard of are amyloidosis, sarcoidosis is also one of them. You've heard probably about Fabry disease. You've heard about you know things that deposit lipids, iron, uh, uh, fat, all these things can be part of this. So it's just a generic term. The difference in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that you don't have an external offender coming in. What's happening is that the heart muscle cells themselves are getting bigger and getting stronger in a way, initially at least over time. And so those cells are what's causing the thickening of the heart muscle. There is not an external factor coming in and making the heart muscle thick like in amyloidosis. There are other things that can cause an infiltrative disease state. We've just gone over that. Interestingly, I just came back from Chicago last weekend where I attended a fundraiser for the Bernie Mac Foundation. Bernie Mac, the actor and comedian, died of sarcoidosis of his lungs. A friend of mine was given an award for a documentary film he did on his experience with sarcoidosis and heart transplant. So just shout out to the Bernie Mac Foundation. Had a fun time Saturday night. And sarcoidosis and cardiac sarcoid is important too. We'll talk about that another day. Today it's amyloidosis. I teased that there might be some other non-cardiac symptoms. And some of them are kind of easy to put together. Some of them are probably still working on elucidating their true role. The most common non-cardiac symptoms. One of the things that kind of stands out is uh, are the neuropathies. A lot of patients will have numbness and tingling and neuropathies, especially with some of the familial syndromes of amyloidosis. But for ATTR, bilateral carpal tunnel is very common. It's interesting because tunnel is so common, there are a lot of patients who you see will have bilateral carpal tunnel and don't have any shortness of breath or symptoms of heart failure and you're wondering what's in their future. But it's in a patient who's presenting with symptoms and has heart failure and has a history of bilateral carpal tunnel, that does make you want to think about cardiac amyloidosis. Lumbar spine stenosis as well is something that we see. The ruptured biceps tendon is often cited. I personally don't have any patients, maybe one patient, but I don't, I don't see that as often as the literature has quoted. And then for some other forms of well, GI, gastrointestinal manifestations are also common, especially with some of the, um, the mutations and familial uh, ATTR variants. So that's not an exhaustive list, but it's the, the, the high points that I think about when I'm kind of quickly assessing a patient, kind of seeing what the likelihood of this being cardiac amyloidosis. We've actually started here at the HCMA while doing our intake calls to ask about bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome because age of diagnosis, presentation of echo, and bilateral gives us the opportunity to say, you really want to talk to your doctor about, is this really HCM or is it something else of the heart muscle? I've probably diagnosed like four or five that way in the past two or three years. And it's we're not here to provide a diagnosis, but it led to the conversation that helped that patient get to diagnosis. And I think just by leading people down the right path to understand that there could be something else going on here is really important to get them in the right bucket because why do you want to be in the right bucket? You want to be in the right bucket because the treatments are completely different. What are some of the treatment options for somebody with amyloidosis? Exactly the point you would want, and it's extremely important to actually make the right diagnosis for personal implications on diagnosis, on what's the outlook, how things would be look over the years, also for treatment purposes, and finally, for family reasons, as well as, you know, what to do there in some scenarios, not, not always. Some of these things are sporadic, so they're not 
letter to the families themselves. And so in terms of the treatment, we broadly uh, divide the you know, amyloid into the two common types. There are there are many others, you know, 26, 27 types, but and we ne we never actually talked about what does the term mean. The term essentially amyloid is a generic term that just means that you have protein sitting between the cells. That protein can be anything, any type of protein, doesn't matter. But it's protein that is changing its shape and its structure and just becoming insoluble and sitting between the cells and where it doesn't belong and causing an issue to that specific organ, either the heart, the kidneys, the bladder, whatever it is. And I'm sure many people heard, you hear about Alzheimer's disease and amyloid in the brain. That's another type of amyloid that is not directly related to anything we have talked about today. It's fairly different, distinct form, but it follows the same script essentially in a way that you have these abnormal proteins sitting where they don't belong. So back to the treatment, the treatment approach is somewhat follows the same concepts. So you have the two common types like chain amyloidosis or what's termed AL amyloidosis, and then you have transthyretin amyloidosis, which is ATTR. And ATTR can, be, can cause nerve disease or heart disease. And so the simplest thing is if you have wild type or, or hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis causing heart disease only, that's straightforward. We have a single medication approved by the FDA uh, called Tefamidus or Vindamax. It is meant to prevent the progression of the disease. And so we don't have means of reversing the disease as of now. We don't have means of making people feel a lot better by normalizing how the heart looks like or its function, but we can stop things from getting worse. And so that's why we call them stabilizers. Obviously, those are just the directed therapies. There are a lot of other things we do from a supportive care perspective. And, you know, we even go down sometimes the transplant route if needed. For the nerve disease, which could coexist with the heart disease as well, there is another class of medication that is helpful for us called silencers. What they do, essentially, they selectively go to the liver, which is secreting the offending protein and just prevents it from being produced. So it prevents the offending protein from being manufactured and secreted into the blood stream. And we call them silencers. There are right now three available on the market in the United States. One is called inotorsin, one is called patisuran, and one is called vitrusuran. And two of them are injectables and one is infusion-based. You know, in a way they work about the same. They, they suppress the production by about 80% or so. So you still have some circulating transthyretin protein, but suppress it by then. And then for the light chain, it's a little bit different. You have an external factory. You want to get rid of the factory. And so you use very gentle type of chemotherapy. It's about uh, with, with immunotherapy as well as with antibody-based therapy. So we call it daratumumab cyber D, that's the regimen. And I don't think we should necessarily go into the details of that, but what you're trying to achieve is a bit different. You're not chasing a protein around or you're not preventing its production from the liver. You just simply want to get rid of the whole factory that is extrinsic to your body that is making this abnormal protein. So that's why we use these drugs. And in the same fashion, they're not meant to remove things from the heart, for example. In AL, it's easier for your body to do that, but 
overall the adjustment to get rid of the production, the factory that's producing the problem. What other kinds of neuropathies or muscle issues might somebody experience with um, any either form of amyloidosis and that could also affect the heart? Are there any specific tendons, muscles, other organs that would be affected in a way that somebody might notice? I'm trying to address a question that's been asked, but I'm trying to generalize the question, Jimmy. If you have only heart disease, that's something Sometimes makes the story slightly complicated in the sense of you need to make sure 100% that this is what you're dealing with. But not infrequently, you actually have other problems, either from bone marrow involvement or kidney disease that is involved with the amyloid. You could have stomach issues uh, that are uh, different from you know the traditional issues we have as we get older from constipation or from uh, irritable bowel syndrome and whatnot. These things are slightly different. There is there is a way that they present. They could overlap still as well. And then the last thing is from a neuropathy and muscle problems. One is the orthopedic manifestation, which Dr. Burroughs mentioned that you have the rupture of tendons, either the Achilles tendon, the biceps tendon. You could have hyaluronic carpal tunnel. You could have shoulders, knees, backs, all of that stuff. But also you could have weakness. It's not just the numbness that people would say, oh, I feel my hands or feet on fire. Then neuropathy in amyloidosis, transthyretin, or even light chain can be fairly, fairly striking. In the sense, if you go untreated for a couple of years, you could become wheelchair bound because you have full neuropathy. So weakness in the legs, weakness in the arms, uh, muscle atrophy, uh, also all the autonomic symptoms, which is like dizziness, passing out just from low blood pressure, or having abnormal response in terms of heart rate. So it can get really complicated and it can involve almost any single organ you can think of can be involved in amyloid, which is, by the way, helpful to the community of clinicians, correct? Because it's really the more, the hardest thing to look at is the isolated heart disease. But once you have these tips and, you know, a kind of pieces of evidence that accumulate over time makes things easier for you to figure them out. Melissa, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I think he did a good job. The only thing I was just going to mention, when you mentioned the wasting, that's not to be underestimated in some of the more advanced cases. I think for a lot of my patients with cardiomyelitis, I spent a fair amount of time talking about nutrition and, and making sure that they're not losing weight. And because it can, it can be, very dramatic. And then the, also the, the, the low blood pressure, they can get the hypotension. We have to make sure we're monitoring their medicines and that we're not making this worse. And the other thing I wanted to mention as well is that you mentioned overlap with a lot of other disease processes, but with also there's overlap with other cardiovascular disease diagnoses. So we'll see a lot of patients with severe aortic valve stenosis also have cardiac amyloidosis. And so we're, we're trying to work together as a team to make sure we're identifying these patients when they present with a valve problem that we you know, make sure they don't have amyloid as well. Many of my patients will have more than one cardiologist because they have electrophysiologists for their pacemaker and their atrial fibrillation. They have me for the amyloid and they may see structural heart for the valve. So it, it, it is very much a group effort. It can be very complex, the way in which it manifests, both in the extracardiac and the cardiac manifestations. So I'll take a moment here to explain why, again, HCMA recognized Center of Excellence Care Modeling is strategically set up to also identify the phenocopies or the mimickers to ensure that those patients get pipeline to the right people. In, in your two cases, you guys run both amyloid and HCM. In many of the other centers that we work with, there might be another team member that's doing the amyloid. So somebody might do the HCM, somebody else might do the amyloid, but the team is evaluating it and working together. So again, 
really important that you get to the highest level care that you can actually been to. And it's interesting. I have somebody who's commenting online and we were just talking yesterday and I hadn't thought about this for them. He's not checking all the HCM boxes and some of these things that we're saying are resonating with him. So we may have already helped uncover somebody who needs some additional workup to see if this is you. Because you can also have screwy tendons and bad joints and good old-fashioned hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as I call it in my family, shit luck, because I got bad joints on top of having had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and a transplant. So I don't have amyloidosis, but somebody else does. So let's talk about a moment where we have the convergence of two rares, because we do have a few of you out there who have both gene-proven hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and proof via myectomy or otherwise of cardiac amyloidosis being present in the heart. Can you have both? You definitely can have both. I think one of the points of this question is these are two diseases that at one point were thought to be rare. And that maybe when we were in medical school 15, 20 years ago, we're taught that you wouldn't see this that often. Now we appreciate that both these diseases are much more common than were uh, previously described. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may be as common as one in 200, one in 500 being, you know, the, the older statistic. In the amyloidosis as well, if you look at some of the data where people are being biopsied or people are looking more closely, we're finding it more. And a lot of our heart failure with preserved ejection fraction patients indeed may be cardiac amyloidosis patients that we haven't identified. So indeed, when you have two things that are not that rare, they can coincide and it gets tricky because some patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are not identified when they're young. Sometimes their symptoms don't manifest until later in life. So that's where you, you can see both. I personally think that the cardiac MRI is very helpful. Biopsy is very helpful. I mean, these are all very specific things that can kind of guide you one way or the other. But when you suspect both the biopsy is really what's going to tell you if there's amyloid in the myocardium or not. And then as we know, we have different risks and different treatments, and they can be given at the same time. So I think it's helpful to have a multidisciplinary team to help with these complex cases, make the diagnosis, and then apply the appropriate treatments when indicated. Are there other diagnostic tests that can be used to help differentiate HCM from amyloid? Any other scans that we can use? Just to add one more point is that you you could be diagnosed with HCM for 20 plus years and have been doing very, very well, and you have sudden worsening. And And that's something to remember is that it's not only diagnosis on presentation. You could be living with a disease such as you live with, uh, you know, osteoarthritis. You live with joint issues and whatever. And so you develop disease later on. That's something that is actually helps us a lot. Clinicians should probe this question, but many of them don't. And I think it's very important for patients to remember that if you really feel different at some point that you've never felt like before, it is time to bring that point up that, and that helped us over the years to pick up these rare scenarios of, of, of something developing on top of another thing. So this could happen. Now, from an imaging perspective, we're actually lucky nowadays that we have a little bit more options, and then we will have a lot more options down the road as well because of you know science and advancement. But at this stage in time, for the light chain amyloidosis, a blood test or a couple of blood tests can direct you one way or another. They are not diagnostic on their own, but they can direct you one way or another. So we typically do a urine test and a blood test for these patients. And then from transthyretin perspective, aside from the MRI that works for all types of amyloid that we mentioned, 
uh, if it's established not very, very early, there is a test, a nuclear test. So a lot of the HCM patients have undergone something called stress nuclear testing over the years. It's somewhat similar, but much simpler. You inject a, a radionuclear tracer and you acquire an image after an hour or three hours. If the image essentially, if the heart is, doesn't light up on that image, then the chances of having transcyritin amyloidosis is very low. It's still possible. There are exceptions, but in general, it's very low. And then if the test is clearly positive and you do more testing to see that the activity of the tracer is in the heart, then that's fairly uh, specific that this is likely to be transcyritin amyloidosis. So that helped us a lot, actually, because if you have someone presenting with HCM, they look clearly like HCM, but they are 85. And this is a real story from last week. Someone is 85, coming with clear-looking HCM, has never had symptoms before, and it's possible, everything is possible. But what you end up doing is that you need to rule out amyloid in such a patient, which we do all the time. And you know that patient did not have amyloid at the time. In the pipeline, there are a couple of newer tracers that hopefully might change the way we look at this disease because you can imagine there are some people who either don't want to undergo three, four, five different tests to arrive to the answer. Genetic testing doesn't solve the problem for the majority of people because the majority of people don't actually have a mutation to explain the amyloid. And so these newer tracers are meant to show every type of amyloid. And so if you have a single test that can show you every single type of amyloid anywhere in your body, then in a way, that's how we would move towards. Meaning someone is coming, they look like HCM, everything looks comfortable, I am not too worried about them, but they have maybe, you know, bilateral carpal tunnel, they've had some other issues. Then instead of doing three, four, five tests and doing even a biopsy sometimes on top of it, then you can imagine using one of these newer tests that are going to be coming out hopefully in the next couple of years, where if it's negative, you just say at this point in time, you don't have this problem. That is helpful. And, and I know there are a couple of people listening right now and their minds are going is this why nobody can make me feel better with my HCM? Am I really dealing with something else? And the answer is don't get ahead of yourself. One in 5,800 people have ATTR amyloid, which is the more common form. And one in 200-ish have HCM. Going to be a cross over here, people. You could have both. And if you notice a significant change in your symptoms, you should really discuss it with your HCM team and do the double check for yourself. Any joint problems, any ruptured tendons, anything else going on gastrically, any carpal tunnel syndrome, discuss that with your HCM doctor and they can do additional testing. Let's talk for a moment about biopsies. I am a personal pro, having had over 20 of them myself post-transplant, but most people in our community don't stop and think about cardiac biopsies. There might be some other reasons for us to start thinking about this with other therapies coming down the road, like genetic therapies. What is a biopsy? of the heart and how is it done? So endomyocardial biopsy is a diagnostic test that we do. There's many ways of doing it, but most commonly it's done in the cath lab because you can use fluoroscopy to guide the biotome. And you can go through the neck, you go through the veins. So you go through the neck or you go through the groin. Where I trained, we went through the groin, but a lot of people go through the neck. If you go follow the anatomy, the veins go to the, the IJ, goes to the SVC, goes to the right atrium. From the right atrium, you go to the right ventricle. 
So you're basically accessing the heart with the catheter. Straight line. Straight line. And it, it kind of guides itself. And essentially what you're doing is you're guiding that catheter to the, the septum, which is the thick muscle between the left ventricle and the right ventricle, because that's the safest place to sample the heart tissue. And you're taking a small, small chunk. I mean, these are really small. It's not we're taking a centimeter out of your heart. It's a really small bit. And we take a number of samples so that to make sure that we have an adequate amount of tissue to make a diagnosis. Now, endomyocardial biopsy is most useful when the disease process is diffuse, like amyloidosis. So when it kind of spreads itself all over the heart muscle, it doesn't really matter what piece you take, you're going to find the amyloid. And not every patient needs it. In fact, we do our best to try to avoid it because it's an invasive test with some risk. But there are a number of cases I've had where we would not have been able to make the diagnosis without endomyocardial biopsy. So it is essential. Uh, there are times where the PYP scans, the, the nuclear scans are equivocal, but we have a strong clinical diagnosis. We need to have samples so that we can justify treating you. There are times when people have bone marrow processes, plasma cell dyscrasias, myeloma, in addition to ATTR. And a lot of times the feedback I'll get from the hematologist, because this is a team effort, is yes, they have smoldering myeloma, but that is not causing their heart disease. Keep looking. Sure enough, we keep looking, we find ATTR. So it's very important that we are able to do it. Most patients do fine. There is a small risk of poking a hole in the heart. Basically, if you either just keep chomping along in the straight line, which most people won't do, most people are very careful at reguiding the catheter so that you get different samples from different parts. Or if you mistakenly biopsy the free wall and, and more aggressively. But that being said, as you can attest, Lisa, a lot of people can get biopsies multiple times and do just well. So when it's necessary, especially with these type of diseases where, you know, the median survival for cardiac amyloidosis has expanded tremendously because of treatments. For AL, it's estimated, I think, around two to three years. ATTR, you know, I think three to five years. That's not, it's pretty short without treatments. And the treatments make a difference. We're talking about mortality benefit. And so when we're trying to save people's lives, extend their lives, it's worth taking a little bit of risk of a biopsy. There are other ways of doing biopsies that are more commonly done in transplant patients, just for the transplant patients to know that echo-guided biopsies are done in a lot of centers. And part of that is because transplant patients have a little bit less risk because their heart has been transplanted. So some of the changes your body undergoes with heart surgery kind of protects it against some of the risk of a biopsy. But for a lot of patients who've not had a heart transplant, you a lot of times we're using fluoroscopy which is x-rays, moving x-rays. So a couple of terms there that might not be familiar to the, to the community. You mentioned some other disease processes, and, and you also brought up a really good point that the long-term survival from amyloidosis is very different than the long-term survival from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So let's just spend a few minutes on that scary topic. Because people will say, well, why do I really, what does it matter if I know if it's amyloid or HCM? What is the disease progression of cardiac amyloidosis untreated? Historically, it's actually fairly rapidly progressive disease associated with really a high rate of recurrent heart failure admissions to the hospital. It's, it's not just I'm short of breath. It's I'm short of breath. I'm swollen up. My water pills are not working and I can't stay at home. So it's fairly dramatic heart failure, you know, presentation. And then also the rate of progression to where someone decides that this is not worth it for them to continue to go in and out of the hospital or even the heart just gives away uh, uh, is also rapid. So 
for light chain amyloidosis, if it's involving the heart, you know, in a significant fashion, we typically consider it kind of a, if not time sensitive, actually more of an urgent slash emergent need to intervene. And so, uh, because you're looking at about 50% uh, risk of death, so meaning 50% of the people die by six months untreated. And so that is a real problem for the advanced stages. Now, don't, don't freak out. It's a very rare disease. Again, you know, back to the point. And the other one is transthyretin, which is slower progression over the years. But you have to remember that by the time someone has heart symptoms, the disease have been cooking in the body for seven years, five years, four years, whatever the number is. And so it's not like from that instant of developing the disease immediately, things are bad. It takes a long lag period before one presents. And so back to transthyretin, if untreated, you're looking at about three to four years in terms of the median survival for patients who develop this at, a, at an older age. It's slightly different for patients who develop it at a younger age. The good news is that we have treatments and this has changed the uh, the landscape of, of this. But this is exactly why we're talking about this today, correct? Because even though it's uncommon to have that, but we would want to find every single patient so that we can offer them therapy. Melissa, any additional comments on the therapeutic options? I just want to emphasize how much the treatments for ATTR cardiac amyloidosis have really changed our outlook and the, the landscape here. I remember as a junior attending at University of California, San Francisco, I made a diagnosis of an inpatient. For me, as a junior attending, I was excited. It was a patient who had severe LVH that everyone said was due to hypertension, but he was hypotensive. To me, that clearly states, you know, I start thinking about amyloid. And, and I made the diagnosis. And I remember his primary care doctor made a comment. It was like, what's the point? You don't have any treatment. He's going to die anyway. And he did. Oh. And it's sad because I was kind of like a little deflated. You know, as a doctor, you're excited, especially when you're young, stressed, fresh out of fellowship, making a rare diagnosis on an inpatient unit. And everyone was at peace because we had no treatments. But fast forward now, that was 2015. Now it's 2023. And so now I have patients who are well into their 80s, doing all the things they want to do, playing golf. We have optimism and hope that they're going to keep doing this as long as possible. So it's a totally different landscape, but finding these patients early is key. We don't want to find you when you're late stage because again, the medicine doesn't remove the protein from the myocardium. It only prevents more proteins from depositing. And so we want to make sure that we're catching you early enough so that we can stabilize you at a good place. We don't want to stabilize you in a bad place. We have just a few minutes left, but I want to talk about a really important issue here. And that is ethnic diversity of those who are impacted. It's one thing to say we need to do better at health equity and we need to diagnose people because, well, if you are a black or brown individual with ATTR, number one, you're not as uncommon as you think. And number two, the prognosis is really poor if you don't get therapy. So can you comment on the racial breakdown of the disease and what we need to do about that? As I mentioned, across the globe, various mutations in transthyretin have emerged. There is one, and there's many mutations, but there's one particular mutation that um, comes out of West Africa. And so that's the mutation that we see because of the transatlantic slave trade in the Americas. So we see it in Carib people of Caribbean descent and in African-Americans. And it gets tricky 
because heart failure is very common in African-Americans. And I wanna make sure everyone knows that most of the heart failure we're seeing is not from cardiac amyloidosis. But we do wanna make sure because people who have cardiac amyloidosis from that specific mutation, they present younger and their outcomes are worse. We wanna make sure that we are providing access to diagnosis and treatment so that they can have better outcomes. And so in identifying patients who have that mutation and, their fa- and basically their families to making sure their families know about it. It's tricky because you don't want to do a genetic testing for a family member of a patient who has ATTR cardiac amyloidosis too young because of the implications in terms of them getting access to uh, life insurance, disability insurance. So the the rule of thumb is usually 10 years before the diagnosis of the proband or the individual who we know has the disease. So if, if, you know, grandpa had ATTR diagnosed at age 80, maybe, you know, your parents should think about it at, at 70. That's kind of the rule of thought. So don't do it at 30. I have patients who have come to me at getting their genetic testing at 30. I find that less helpful in particular and potentially harmful. But it's very important because historically African-Americans have had less access to highly specialized centers, less access to the diagnostic treatments. You know, we're talking about cardiac MRIs, PYP scans. Your local cardiologist probably does not have that on every corner. You have to go to- Can you explain what a PYP scan is? That's the nuclear scan. So the special nuclear imaging, it's not the usual nuclear stress test. It's a very specific type and it has to be done well with high quality. You know, specialized centers have these tests to make the diagnosis and then you need to have treatment. And the treatment is expensive. The sticker price is over $200,000 even for tefamidus, even though most, just once you know, no, nobody out there is paying that. Every case is negotiated. And so that the most people are only paying, you know, their $30 a month. Some people are paying nothing. So it is affordable to the patients, but it requires a physician who knows what they're doing. So that's the health equity piece. Taking it one step back from amyloid, even if you think about hypertension and HCM, in uh, you know in african americans and in the black community you know the, we see this even in in oregon even in portland where we actually are you know we don't have as much diversity in our population we tend to see that we always see patients who have been told for 20 plus years that their cardiomyopathy and the fact that they feel miserable is related to hypertensive heart disease and you end up essentially, you know, proving even genetically that they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So that the other piece of it, correct? So it gets complicated. Hypertension, HCM, amyloid, they can look the same. So that's why, you know, everybody needs uh, a really a, a reasonable evaluation if they know themselves that they haven't left, you know, themselves over the years totally untreated. Uh, and not on many, many medications for blood pressure. Absolutely. So I will take this this moment to also pitch finally. This has been like such a long time in coming because I keep recreating it in my mind. But in May, the HCMA will be actually hosting its first committee meeting of our health equity committee. And just kind of as a shout out to how I've kind of figured out how to structure this committee because I have struggled with it. Because health equity isn't just black and white. It's not Latino or Asian. It's young and old. It's men and women. It's rural and urban. So our first meeting will be to be setting up working groups within the committee that speak to each section of the constituency. So we will have those from each of the communities we're going to be talking about creating their wish list of what they think they need for their particular subset of the community in terms of not only 
support, but diagnosis and transportation and understanding and outreach and awareness and education, all of those things, but for each. And it's it's really taken me as the, the CEO, I put my CEO hat on here, like how do we organize this and make it meaningful work? So um, I, that's what I've come up with so far. Still, still might change a little bit as we evolve it, but I think that's the right approach so that we hear from all of the communities and we see where we have likenesses and where you break off. And multiple diagnoses are also an area that has a, a burden of not being equitably treated. So HCM and amyloid, or maybe it's orthopedic issues on top of your HCM and how are you managing one and the other and doing your PT for this, but your heart won't do it. So there's so many different issues that need to be addressed. Um, I'm sure of one thing, um, there's no lack of interesting work ahead for us and interesting solutions to come up with. And that's just the tip of the iceberg for today. We have approached the, the end of the hour. I cannot thank the both of you enough. You are both experts in this field, which is unique. I thank you for sharing your knowledge with our patient community, as well as your fellow physicians who will listen to this and industry folks who will listen to this. I do want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this, which is Pfizer. They have uh, provided some educational grants to HCMA for the education of the crossover diagnosis between amyloid and HCM. And this is a podcast that we produce thanks to that grant funding. So partnerships work. And this is another indication of how we put those dollars to work to help educate. So thank you both for being here. We look forward to hearing more from you on different topics coming up. Melissa and I kind of skirted right over this issue at the beginning, but we are happy to say we are waiting the completion of the application from Wellstar to be um, evaluated as an HCMA recognized center of excellence. So we're really encouraged to move that process forward. Mod's old school. He's OSHU. He's been around. We know him. But we we continue to grow as a community and an organization. And we thank you for your help and support today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. And thanks to all of our patients who always join us and make these uh, more interactive and more exciting. Absolutely. And I think we've actually provided some great insight to at least two individuals who are like, this is ringing bells. My hope we ring a lot of bells and I hope you have great conversations with your healthcare providers. This has been Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Mm-hmm.